Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. One of the things I've enjoyed about the men's Bible study that has been going the past few weeks is it gives men a chance not only to study God's Word, but also to share with one another, and sometimes, honestly, to overshare. And uh, I was guilty of oversharing yesterday, and I could see by the expressions on my brother's faces that some of them were, were shocked, because I started talking about and telling the story about the time that I got arrested. And usually when I bring up my arrest in the afternoon that I spent in the lockup, people have two responses. Uh, one is shock. They're just shocked that, that I was arrested. The other is shock as well. They're shocked that I was ever released. Both of those are legitimate emotions to have. Um, I should set your minds at rest. Uh, I wasn't convicted. I, uh, the charges are dropped. Turns out I was innocent. My usual reaction when I tell this story, and, and maybe the reason that I bring it up, is people express surprise. People have known me for years are surprised that I was ever arrested. And I say, really, because I wrote about it at length in my 2007 book, Rethinking Worldview, which you claim to have read. <laughs> but you know what? It's grace. You all get a pass for not having read that story before or heard about it. And I'm not going to recount the tale to you this morning, but there's one moment that I want to share because I think it, it can help us understand a little bit of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, so after I was arrested, I was arrested at Chicago O'Hare Airport, and then I was transferred to several different lockups and increasingly surreal experiences of the justice system. But while this was going on, there was another drama playing out in the free world where, where I uh, was no longer living. It just so happens that, that my father's attorneys were, were there in town. And so almost as soon as I was arrested, there was an, an attorney following me around trying to locate me, to, to spring me from incarceration. But it was a lazy Sunday the desk sergeants at the various precincts had nothing else to do. And so they entertained themselves by telling the attorney where I was, but giving her the wrong information. So while I was sitting contentedly in a, in a jail cell, uh, the attorney was going from precinct to precinct, only to find that I wasn't really where they'd said I was. There's nothing she could do because she couldn't find me. And it's at that moment that she got an idea, and she phoned another attorney who was in her same firm. That attorney on that Sunday afternoon wasn't serving a client. He was at a birthday party, but it happened to be the birthday party of a precinct captain in the Chicago police. And so the next time she went to a, a sergeant who wouldn't give her the right information, he was put on the phone with his captain, and he revealed my true location. The moral of the story whether or not someone can help you depends a lot on whose party they happen to be at. This is true in Chicago, and it's true in the world at large. People's ability, their power to deliver you, really does depend on where they're at. Now, with that in mind, in Hebrews 8, we're going to be contemplating the priesthood of Jesus and specifically where he's at. 
and why the location of Jesus makes such a huge difference in his ability to help us. There are three things we're going to be looking at. First of all, the session of our high priest. Secondly, the shadow of heavenly things. And then finally, the superiority of the new covenant. So we're going to start with the session of our high priest, which is a weird kind of phrase that I'm not going to explain yet. First, I want to look at the text, and then we'll dig into what it means to talk about the session of our high priest. So Hebrews 8 begins this way. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. We'll stop there for a moment. You just think about the implication of those lines. Now, last time, when we looked at Hebrews 7, we saw that Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priests who went before him. So at the beginning of the chapter, that's still the point that we're making. But we're just trying to make it more forcefully. The author begins by saying, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. We have such an amazing priest. Jesus is the best possible high priest that you can have. And then he gives us further reason for believing this. Further reason to understand the, the greatness of Jesus as priest. And it has something to do with where Jesus is located. We don't think much about where Jesus is right now. When we think about Jesus' presence at all, we tend to think of it not as a, a localized phenomena, but Jesus is just sort of everywhere. Right? Jesus is in my heart. That's where Jesus is located. But when the Bible talks about Jesus' location now, it actually does physically locate him in a certain place. It says he is somewhere. When you think of him, you should think of him as being in this place. And it's not the same place that you would find the Levitical priests. Right? The Levitical priesthood that, that the audience of this epistle is clinging to, those priests are here. Those priests serve here on earth. If you want to find them, you can go to where they are and you can see them at work. They serve on earth. They serve in a man-made structure, in a building made by human hands. And what they do is they offer animal sacrifices, right? They go out and they get animals, and if these animals are sufficient, if they meet the criteria, then these animals can be offered up, and this has to be done continually. This is the continual work of the priests to, to kill these animals and to offer their blood as sacrifice. And they do this on the Day of Atonement, which was ordained way back in Leviticus 16, that there would be a day every year set aside for these atoning sacrifices to be made. And this is still going on at the time that the epistle to the Hebrews is written. You could still go to the temple and see these priests in action. You could still see these animals being lined up, walked in, sacrificed, offered up, and burnt on the altar. This was all something that was tangible and it was real. And like so many things that you can see with your eyes, there's a certain um, legitimacy imparted by it. It impresses you to see it, so it's understandable. But to be told that all this has been swept away in favor of something that you cannot see, it's kind of hard to hold on to. It's hard to cling to that. 
Jesus is a better priest. And it has something to do with the fact that he's not doing what the other priests are doing. He's not located where the other priests are located. Right? Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. That's where he's located. He's not in a temple in Jerusalem with the other priests trying to pick out animals. He is located. He, he is bodily. He's physically present, still incarnate, at the right hand of the Father Almighty, as we confess in the Creed. He serves not in a tent made with human hands or a tabernacle or a temple that men have built. He serves in a place that is described by our author in verse 2 as the true tent. He serves in the true tent that was set up by the Lord. Not by Moses, not by the heirs of Moses, not by Solomon, but by the Lord. This is where Jesus does his work. Having offered himself up once and for all for sin as the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. On the actual Day of Atonement. On the real Day of Atonement. Not the one that was repeated over and over and over again in anticipation. Because what was done on that day could never be done enough that it didn't have to be repeated. But Jesus, on the actual Day of Atonement, offered himself up as a sacrifice once for sin. That's what he does. So if you want to appreciate the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus, you have to contemplate the session of our high priest. If you do ever find yourself up on charges and having to go before the judge, you know how this goes. You'll be walked in, you'll sit at the table with your attorney, the prosecutors will come in, and, and everyone will be seated, and the last person to enter will be the judge. And when the judge enters, a bailiff will say, all rise. And everyone who is seated before will stand. The judge comes, the judge sits, then everyone can sit, and the proclamation is made. Court is now in session. In session. What does that mean? It means the judge sat down. Literally. Literally. The court is in session because the man who makes the judgment sat down. And that's what begins the session of the court. So when we think about the session of our high priest Jesus, specifically what we're talking about is Jesus sat down. Jesus sat down. The Levitical priests, if they still had a temple, would still be offering the sacrifices that they offered way back when. They would still be working. And that work would still be inadequate for the needs of the people to atone for their sins. Jesus did it once. And when he was finished, he sat down. And that's not just language of rest. It's not just, okay, Jesus finished his work and then that was tiring, so he sat down. To be seated at the right hand of the Father is to take up authority. Right? This is a position of authority. This is a position of judgment. He is the one who sits beside the throne where majesty is enthroned. So this speaks to the power of Jesus. This is where he's seated. It's interesting when you think about the, the government of our churches. 
when we talk about how our churches are governed, they're governed by elders. But you know, there's always in the English language these funny words we use to describe when a group of something gets together. Right? You don't have a group of crows when a bunch of crows get together. You have, for some reason, a murder of crows, which makes no sense. Well, when elders get together, you don't have a group of elders. You have a session. A session. It's, what we, it's the term we use to describe the, the way that the church is governed in human terms. And it's not an accident because the session in view, the government in view, is borrowed. The power in view is a borrowed power that comes from the session of our high priest, Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. Jesus Christ is the one who governs the church. Any authority that anyone wields is merely borrowed from the session of our high priest. Christ's session is ongoing. So Jesus is a better priest because he serves in the true tent. He serves in the tabernacle that every tabernacle you've seen with your eyes is merely a copy of. He's in the real place where the sacrifice needed to be offered. He is himself the real sacrifice that needed to be offered. He is himself the actual high priest who needed to offer it. And everything else that went before was just a shadow. It was just a copy. So we've talked about the session of our high priest. We should consider the shadow of heavenly things. The shadow of heavenly things. We continue to read in Hebrews 8. We're told, now if he, this is Jesus. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there were priests who offered gifts according to the law. If he was still on earth, he wouldn't need to be a priest. There's already priests on earth doing what an earthly priest can do. They serve a copy and shadow. Of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So we'll pause right there and just consider something about the nature of that whole dispensation of law. Like everything you read about in the Old Testament, from the building of the tabernacle, the institution of the Levitical priesthood, all of the various sacrifices, the rules that surrounded them, the way that everything had to be done, none of it was left to chance. There was no instance where, where God said to Moses, look, we need some kind of a sacrifice. I'll leave it to you to figure out what that should be and what it should look like. And, and, you know, just take a look at the, at the animal kingdom and whatever animals you fancy, those can be the ones to sacrifice. Uh, If you don't like sheep, hey, Put sheep on the altar, Moses. Your call. Never. Everything that is done is strictly controlled. The command is to follow the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. And the word for pattern here could also be translated as model. The idea, this is more than just saying, follow my instructions. Like, I'm going to tell you how to do it, and you just follow what I say. It's like Moses has been shown something that he is meant to be imitating. Something has been revealed to Moses. Some higher reality has been revealed to him. And everything that he's doing here on earth is meant to be a copy or a shadow of that thing. So all of it has sign value. The, The physical reality of worship in ancient Israel, every aspect of it is a sign. It all means something. None of it is random. 
None of it is unimportant. It's meant to be suggestive of a reality that is higher than this reality. And also of a reality that is in the future. Right? A reality that is yet to be revealed. That's not to say that all of these things weren't good. I'm not saying these are copies and shadows. Copies are inferior. Shadows have no substance. All that stuff was worthless. Just silly. And it never should have been done. Not at all. I mean, all of it was deeply necessary and deeply meaningful and ought to be treated and regarded with respect. The point is this. It was good for its time. For the time in redemptive history, considering how much God had revealed, all that, that the people of God were given in the Old Testament was good. It was what they needed. But the times have changed. History has gone forward. We no longer live with the revelation that they had. We have something more. We know something more. So it's good for its time in redemptive history. But what, what is revealed in Christ is superior. When the Westminster Confession talks about that era of law, uh, all the things that you see happening in the Old Testament, it says that all of them had a purpose. And that purpose was to foresignify Christ. To foresignify. To symbolize, to signify in advance the coming of Christ. Now listen to these words. This covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And this is called the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament economy, in that era of law, like God operated differently. God revealed himself differently in these types, in these shadows, in these copies of things. And this was intended to foresignify Christ, to reveal Christ in advance, so that when he was revealed fully, the pieces could be fit together. We could understand what it was all for. All of it pointed to him. When Calvin talks about this, he says that the whole service, according to the law, was nothing more than a picture, as it were, designed to shadow forth what is found spiritually in Christ. To shadow forth what was found spiritually in Christ. All of it had a purpose, and that purpose was to reveal Christ in advance. Not fully, not clearly, but to hint at Him. To, to give these uh, tantalizing anticipations of Christ to come. Now when we think about this, we shouldn't think about these copies and shadows the way that, that uh, Plato does in, in Plato's cave. Right? If, if you're familiar with the, the story of Plato's cave, the idea is that all of reality is just shadows on the wall. And the person who breaks free of his chains leaves the cave and goes out and sees the real world that is casting the shadows. That person has the real knowledge. And so you might be tempted to think that the author of Hebrews is speaking in similar terms. That, that all of these copies and shadows, they were simply meaningless or even deceptive. 
that there was a higher reality that was being concealed. But actually, these copies and shadows are not meant to conceal a reality. They're meant to begin the revelation of one. And so they are deeply meaningful. The rituals are not empty. The rituals are not empty. A lot of times, I think, nurtured a little bit by our Protestant ethic and a lot by our American ethos, we tend to look at things that are, are meant as signs as if they aren't fully real. Right? Things that are really real are physical. Things that are really true are material. Right? The material world is what is real. The world that you cannot see, cannot touch, the world that is only accessible in signs and symbols, that somehow is ephemeral if it even exists at all. And that's our sensibility. So to tell us that these things are signs, that these are, are, are symbols, in our mind we think, well, they're just mere ritual. And we know what to do with ritual. Don't engage in it anymore. Right? We shouldn't have ritual. We shouldn't go through the motions of things. There's nothing to that. Interestingly, Calvin. Now, Calvin, Protestant reformer, right, famously anti-Roman Catholic ritual, Calvin says these rituals were not empty. These rituals were rich in meaning. They meant something. The rituals that the people went through, these were the very things that were for signifying Christ. Deeply, deeply meaningful. God had ordained them. The reason why they're being set aside isn't because they were empty and, and stupid. They're being set aside because the thing they foresignified is here, is real. Like all that they promised has been fulfilled. So they are not necessary any longer. The ancient rituals, Calvin writes, were not without reason appointed. But there was a real and spiritual meaning in all these things. I just want to pause there and note, he says real and spiritual as if those two things go together. And I really wish that in all of our minds they did. You know, that, that we could talk about reality and, and spiritual things and understand that to say something is spiritual is not to say that it's somehow less real than what is physical. If anything, it is to assert that it is more real than what is merely physical. There was real and spiritual meaning in all these things since Moses was commanded to execute everything according to the original pattern which was given him from heaven. They needed to correspond to reality. So it was important that they be the way that they were. Now the fact of that, the fact that the way that this worship was organized were human rituals designed to conform to a higher reality ought to tell us something about the nature of our own worship as well. The way that we worship. Right? The way that we worship is influenced by a higher reality. In uh, Reformed theology, we, we talk about this as the regulative principle. The idea is that what we do in worship are the things that we're commanded to do in worship. And it's the reason why worship at grace, for example, consists of elements that you find instituted in Scripture. And, and we don't do things that, that might actually be a lot of fun to do, but we don't find them instituted in Scripture. Right? So it might be fun at this point for me to pause and have some actors come up and do a skit 
It's just that that's not an element of worship ordained by Christ. So this feels very limiting, right? There's so much creativity that's excluded by this. We could we could make worship so much better if we could just take off those restraints and just do whatever we wanted to do. But in the same way that worship in the Old Testament wasn't a question of the people of Israel coming together, digging deep into their resources and coming up with the most expressive way to worship God as their culture would, would uh, inform them, our worship isn't that either. Like our worship is intended to correspond to a higher reality. The Old Testament rituals are not the only copies and shadows in the room, in other words. When we come together and we confess our sin, when we come together and we commune with Him, right, when we administer the sacraments here, when we hear the Word preached, these things are copies and shadows of a reality that is higher than where we are. And also a reality that is in our future. Right? They anticipate, they anticipate a worship service that will take place forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Since God gives this direction, Calvin says, that all things are to be done according to his own rule, it is not lawful for us to do anything different from it. There are no true symbols of religion, but those which conform to what Christ requires. Not to be narrow. Not to say, well, we're trying to make worship as boring as we can possibly make it, because that makes us feel more pious. Because it's meant to fit something higher. It's meant to correspond to something more than this. The shadow of heavenly things. We should not discount the value of shadows. Because shadows are counted. Not counted. Shadows are cast by something. When you see a shadow, it's never unaccompanied by the thing that casts it. So we can actually learn from the shadows of heavenly things what the heavenly things are like. What they look like. And how to reverence them. So last thing to consider is the superiority of the new covenant. The superiority of the new covenant. We already heard in Hebrews 7 that Jesus brings a better covenant along with him. His priesthood administers a better covenant. And now in the rest of our chapter, we hear this point made. And it's made primarily through a long quote that you see in your text from Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah anticipates a new covenant that God is going to make, proclaims it, this new covenant. And this is the only place you'll find this kind of language. So again, the author of Hebrews is going back into the Old Testament. He's finding these unique utterances and showing how these things connect to the reality that we now see all around us. So let's pick up, this is uh, verse 6, beginning, uh, but as it is. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here's the quote from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We've already seen the author of Hebrews do exactly this thing that he's doing now in chapter 7, only he used Psalm 110.4 to do it. Remember, he goes and he finds Psalm 110.4 that promises you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he shows that if that psalm was written after the Levitical priesthood was set up, then that means there was something wrong with that priesthood. Because if that priesthood had been adequate, we never would have been told that there needed to be a new one, that something new needed to come. So now, the exact same uh, rhetorical technique is being used to show us the need for a new covenant. Right? There was a covenant in place. Right? There was a promise that was made. But in Jeremiah 31, this prophet of God suddenly starts talking about a new covenant that God intends to make. Now, if God is going to make a new covenant, that seems to suggest that the old covenant wasn't enough, that it wasn't adequate, that that the the old covenant wasn't going to deliver on its promises, and, and therefore a new one was necessary. Now, in looking at that passage in Jeremiah 31, you can dig into that, and you can find many aspects, a lot of teaching on the nature of the new covenant. But it's interesting To note, that's not the reason why it's being quoted here. The author of Hebrews doesn't quote Jeremiah 31 and then start telling us, now here are the three aspects of the new covenant. But the reason that he's citing it is not to show us this is what the new covenant is like. He's citing it to show us we needed a better covenant than the one we had. If we didn't need a better covenant, then Jeremiah 31 wouldn't be in Scripture. The prophet would never have had to write these words if it were not for the inadequacy of what went before. Now, let's talk a little bit about this covenant. Right? You've heard me before use terms like uh, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And a lot of times when we think Old Testament and New Testament, you might think, all right, so if there's a covenant of works and that requires obedience, that's the Old Testament. The way that people were saved in the Old Testament is they kept the law. They were obedient. But that was really hard to do, so it was possible for God to come up with a second plan. The first one was too difficult, so he came up with this easier plan of salvation, and that was this covenant of grace. Not at all. Erase all of that from your mind. The covenant of grace doesn't begin at the cross. This promise of grace begins in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 is the first time after sin that this uh, intimation of grace uh, is revealed. Now, it's not fully revealed. It's not fully revealed. We don't have the the full aspect of it. We don't know exactly what it means. But we do begin to understand that something's going to happen in the future that is going to reverse the effects of sin and the penalty of sin. And then throughout the Bible, 
we start getting more and more clarity on what that something is, what that promise is actually saying to us. Now, this covenant of works that's made with Adam, right? Adam has to be obedient in the garden. That doesn't disappear when the promise of grace is made. Right? We're still under a condemnation because we haven't been obedient. Right? We haven't done what we ought to have done. It's just that Christ, through his obedience, fulfills the terms of that promise. And so a promise of grace is actually conditioned on the fulfillment of that earlier promise of obedience. Only our obedience has nothing to do with it. It's now the obedience of Christ that we appropriate by faith. That's what's going on in that second covenant. So the Westminster Confession will tell you that the, the promise of grace was administered differently in different times. And it was revealed progressively. So during the, the time of the law, it looked different. People understood it differently. Uh, the law itself kind of reiterates that covenant of works. Right? It's giving you all of these rules that you need to follow. And yet, even there, there is a dispensation of grace in operation. And we know that because later in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be told there were all these heroes of the faith, people who were justified by, by grace through faith, and they're all in the Old Testament before Jesus. But this is the interesting thing about that time period. They, they have full remission of sin. Right? They have what they need to be saved, but they have it differently than we do. They have it by looking forward to the promised Messiah without even knowing his name. Things were different before the coming of Christ. So when we see this new covenant in Jeremiah, we should see there is some continuity. or There's continuity with what went before. It's not that God was never gracious until Jeremiah 31, that God was just kind of harsh and judgmental until Jeremiah's age, and then God was like, you know what? All this negativity is not working for me. Maybe I should, I don't know, be gracious. And then God changed plans. Not at all. In the character of God, this graciousness was always abundant. It only comes into focus over time. Uh, you might think of it this way, that, that in that era of law, the, the gracious character of God, it is revealed, but it's revealed uh, not as clearly. The light doesn't shine as brightly as it does later when it kind of comes fully into view. So the new covenant does make promises, and these are better promises, we're told. It promises uh, in verse 12, which is the final um, couplet at the end of that quote from Jeremiah, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. This is gratuitous remission of sins. Right? The, the, the real forgiveness of sins. Not the rolling back of the penalty year after year. But the real forgiveness of sins is promised in the new covenant. But more than that, there is a renovation of the heart. An inward renovation of the heart that is promised. I will write my law on their hearts, in their minds. They will change inside. So we understand that there's a work of the Holy Spirit in, in renovating our brokenness and changing us in sanctifying us that is part of this new covenant. And there's also the illumination of the mind as far as the knowledge of God is concerned. There's this interesting line. This is uh, verse 11, which begins, And they shall not teach. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. There's a different relationship in the new covenant between people and God. 
In the past, the way that you accessed him was indirectly. Right? During the, the era of the law, you accessed God through the, the priestly ritual and the rites. You didn't go directly to him. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice, a sacrifice could be offered on your behalf. But now, in this new covenant, it's no longer necessary for us to, to have our, our relationship with God mediated by other human beings. Because we have Christ as mediator. We now can in the words of Hebrews 7, draw near to him with this direct access. We have a different kind of knowledge of God than we had before. All the gifts and promises of God have been available to his people throughout the eras, right, throughout the age. And yet, the ways in which they've been available have changed. Right? The way in which we see them has changed. But one of the things we often will tie ourselves up in knots about is um, okay, how did things work before Christ? How did things work before the Holy Spirit was given as a comforter? Right? Because we have in the Old Testament these references to the Spirit. Right? Suddenly the Spirit comes in and does things. And it's like, well, that's not meant to happen because the Spirit hasn't been given yet. What, what's going on? So there can be some confusion. Well, I think Calvin can be helpful here as well. Because what he helps us understand is a relationship between the way things work under grace and the way things work or under gospel and the way things work under law. It's not that everything has changed with the coming of the gospel. It's that a lot of things that we didn't understand the function of, we now understand. And a lot of things that worked very, um, I don't want to say haphazardly, but, but, but imperfectly now work in a fuller sense. Jeremiah does not expressly deny that God formerly wrote his law on their hearts and pardoned their sins, but he makes comparison between the less and the greater. The promises were then obscure and intricate so that they shone only like the moon and stars in comparison with the clear light of the gospel which shines brightly on us. Whatever spiritual gifts the fathers obtained, they were accidental, as it were, to their age. For it was necessary for them to direct their eyes to Christ in order to become possessed of them. In layman's terms, everything that, that the fathers, the people of, of the Old Testament possessed, everything of Christ that they possessed, they possessed, as it were, uh, borrowed from the future. Right? Their faith looked forward to future fulfillment. It was a faith that God would keep his promises. All of it is anchored forward in time to the cross. But now, living after the cross, we live in a time when, when we no longer need to, to see through copies and shadows. We no longer see by the light of the moon. Instead, the full sunlight of Christ shines and the things of Christ, the heavenly things, are revealed to us in a way that they were not revealed, even to the heroes of the faith in the past. The Old Covenant that the first readers of this epistle were clinging to, it was obsolete. It was old. It was vanishing away. And yet they held on to it. They clung to it. Which is human nature. We cling to what we know. We cling to what we know, whether what we know is actually better or not. It doesn't have to be better for us to prefer it. There are a lot of things that aren't better 
but we like them better because they're not change. They're what we're used to. They're what we understand. We want to stick with what we understand, with what we're comfortable with. These people were no different than us. A great change had come into something that was very important to them. It was an unsettling change. And so, not without reason, they clung to the past. They clung to the old ways. On the back wall of the room, there's a quote of Flannery O'Connor's. It's the one that's at the center there. And you probably can't read it from where you're sitting, but uh, if you go up to it afterwards, you'll find these words. She says, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. The change that was being talked about here, even though it was a change for the better, it was painful. It was painful for people to, to walk away from what had been their history, what had been their identity, for their, their sense of grounding who they were. And now they're being told to embrace this new way of seeing the world, this new reality, basically. They're being told that everything that went before was a copy and a shadow. And their eyes should be looking somewhere else. That's hard to hear. It's hard to swallow. And I think about the things we cling to. Right? We cling, some of us still cling to vinyl. Despite the digital revolution, some of us are still clinging to printed books. Even though everybody else around you is reading the Bible on their phone. Or doing Facebook or whatever. We cling to cursive. It's amazing to me how many people flipped out at the thought that public schools would not be teaching cursive when I remember with joy the day that I liberated myself from cursive handwriting and started writing in block capitals and and refused ever again to write cursive or to write with pencil now that I was old enough to have ink to write with. We cling to these things. And you try to take them away and, and we cling all the harder. We cling to tradition. Cling to our history, cling to our sense of identity, all of which are good things, taken rightly. But sometimes good things become bad things and we cling to them too much. We also cling to sin. We cling to our idols, cling to ourselves. Remember the story from the wilderness where in order to heal the people, God commanded Moses to build that brazen serpent. And when it was lifted up, everyone who looked on it would be healed. I mean, that's significant. That's an important gift. Jesus, remember, looks back on that and says, you know, I'm just like that. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And yet, what did they do with it? God gave them this brazen serpent, and then we find out generations later, they worshipped it. They named it. And they offered sacrifice to it in a holy place. They took this good thing and they clung to it. They wrapped it up in their identity and they made it into something that it wasn't. So that clinging became a kind of idolatry. What the author of Hebrews is saying to them and saying to us is, the thing that you're clinging to, it's old. The thing that you're holding on to so much is old. It is as old as the garden. But it's not as powerful as you think it is. It doesn't have the grip on you that you think it does. And it is not wrapped up in who you are in the way that you think it is. The thing that you're clinging to, the idol, the sin, whatever it is, 
It is obsolete. It is on the verge of vanishing away. It is being pried out of your hands by the power of a priest who lived an indestructible life. Don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. Don't cling to it. If you want something to cling to, cling to Christ. Hold fast your confession in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.